This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessio. On WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up to date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I hope you're all taking a little break, a little breather from Christmas shopping uh, to spend time with us over the course of the next hour. Uh, I've been excited about this program because in the studio we're going to be joined by a great colleague, Dr. Caleb Peck. Dr. Peck is a doctor of psychology and a neuropsychologist. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about what neuropsychology is, uh, some of his background, and some of the illnesses he helps us diagnose, uh, specifically talking about things like dementia and ADD. Uh, We may even talk a little bit about forensics and how that plays into all this. So Dr. Peck will be with us in the show and, as always, be ready to take questions. I had a great week this week. I had a super opportunity to spend time with the athletic training students at the University of Connecticut on Thursday, uh, where I spent time uh, teaching a course on athletes who have epilepsy and migraine headaches and some of the overlap between those two conditions. And it's always great working with these young professionals who are going out to treat athletes at all levels. It's a very popular specialty uh, at the University of Connecticut where uh, they really lead the pack in training people to do that. And then yesterday I was invited to Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. And I gave grand rounds there uh, in the morning. And grand rounds... It's kind of interesting. So a lot of times people ask, what is Grand Rounds? Grand Rounds is, it's usually a weekly lecture that universities have where they invite all the people in the Department of Neurology uh, at all different levels, the residents, students, and faculty are there, and they invite someone to present something new or different and to talk about their research in that and really kind of put themselves out there for questioning about their research or what information they have. So it's a time to present information you have and also be willing to have it critiqued by other professionals. In this case, it was not just neurology. There were some people there from orthopedics and from physiatry, and and it was great fun. Uh, I didn't realize how big their neurology program is. Uh, Here at UConn, we have five residents every year for a total of 15 residents um, for each all three years. At Downstate, they have 44 residents uh, with 11 in each year, uh, including a PGY one year. So, And they're expanding. So they cover a huge area of Brooklyn, uh, which I think would be the fourth largest city in the country if it were a city. So it, it was great being out there with them. Uh, this day in medicine, December 2nd, 1885, is the day Dr. George Minot, M-I-N-O-T, Minot, was born. He's an American hematologist, a physician who practiced hematology, 
and he won the Nobel Prize in 1934 for his link to feeding people liver in order to treat pernicious anemia. What his, was interesting about him was that he really started his work in 1912 when he was a house officer, a resident at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he started making links to medical conditions and diet, or at that time, poor diet. So it was interesting that we didn't really make those associations of dietary deficiency and medical conditions until he started treating it. And his link to treating using liver to treat pernicious anemia, which is a B12 deficiency, by the way, uh, he was able to win the Nobel Prize. And we've come so far now as we talk about diet. And actually, we're going to talk to Dr. Peck a little bit about that because uh, there have been so many things written about Alzheimer's disease and diet, the healthy foods, the things like the Mediterranean diet, and things that are not healthy. So uh, it'll be interesting to chat a little bit about that. But we remember Dr. George Mino today, which uh, would be his birthday. Uh, I had my article this week in the Norwich Bulletin dealt with wrist injuries in youth sports. Uh, interesting topic for me. You know, we get f so focused on concussion when we talk about youth sports, and rightfully so, uh, in terms of the overall implications to someone's education and their future. But a recent article published in Pediatrics looked at hand and wrist injuries in sports. Now, the principal sports involved are things like football, so uh, things like football or where there's a puck involved or a stick. So lacrosse, hockey, uh, those types of sports, we're starting to see more serious hand and wrist injuries. And from the standpoint of a child, understand the hand and wrist, the, the wrist joint has about 15 bones involved. There's the hand bones, which are now connected to the ulna and radius, the main bones of the forearm. And there are a lot of ligaments, blood vessels, and nerves. And the reason is just think about your wrist and how many axes, how many different directions you can move that wrist in. So in the study they did, about 45% of injuries got better in seven days. But a little over 12% of injuries lasted more than three weeks. And my guest on that, and I interviewed Dr. Joel Ferreira. Dr. Ferreira is a hand and wrist specialist at the University of Connecticut. And it's really those injuries that fracture the growth plate in a young athlete. Don't forget, those bones are still growing, and there's a plate where those cells are that keep the bone growing. So a fracture, a missed fracture of that area could be catastrophic to a child. So... Hand and wrist injuries, the take-home message is hand and wrist injuries that are not getting better over a short period of time, you need to get them to a physician and potentially have that wrist imaged and treated. Next up, we're going to be chatting with my guest today, Dr. Caleb Peck, about neuropsychology. Let me give you the phone numbers now, 860-522-9842. And 1-800-966-9842. That's 966-WTIC. If you're shy, you don't want to come on the air, you can email me right here on the show at info at alessimd.com. And we will be able to get your question answered with my guest, Dr. Caleb Peck.
We're going to take a short break, and we're going to be back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Hey, girl, what you doing down there? That is the music of Tony Orlando, who will be at the Mohegan Sun tomorrow with his Christmas show. So it should be very exciting uh, with the Tony Orlando Christmas show at Mohegan Sun. I'll be there on Friday night. Um, I won't be performing. I will be there. Well, maybe I will be performing. It is uh, lacrosse. Uh, Indoor lacrosse begins their season, the Mohegan Black Wolves. And uh, for those people who have attended those in the past, it's very exciting. It is uh, very exciting. It's fast-moving. Um, a lot going on, uh, and just it's it's fantastic. So if you get a chance, get over to Mohegan Sun um, and enjoy what's going on there. Um, I want to welcome my guest, Dr. Caleb Peck. Dr. Peck is a neuropsychologist, as I mentioned at the top of the show, and he uh, runs a, a practice, uh, Claris Health Alliance, which is located in Norwich as well as in West Hartford. And uh, Caleb, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. So, Caleb, for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about what is a neuropsychologist and and how you got into this? Yeah, most definitely. So neuropsychology is a subspecialty of the field of clinical psychology. And a, a neuropsychologist, though, does not spend much of their day doing psychotherapy or doing treatment. There are some neuropsychologists that will do treatment. Um, But for the most part, neuropsychologists are really focused and get very excited about understanding how the brain functions. And so the brain is this amazing organ. You know, there's billions and billions of neurons that are all interacting. And uh, and when when something goes wrong or when something gets thrown off a little bit, those disconnections can cause problems. And so neuropsychologists focus on assessing and diagnosing uh, problems related to brain functions. Are so what was your training like? So you you became a psychologist, you got your PhD, and then what? Yeah, and so uh, along the way, um, at some point, uh, most folks declare, you know, decide what direction they're going to go to. And so uh, one of the last things that we do before we finish our PhDs is we do a residency. And I did my residency in neuropsychology at the University of Kansas School of Medicine in Wichita. And then after that, we do a two-year fellowship that specializes and focuses entirely on uh, neuropsychology. So... When we think about this, uh, we're talking about disconnections, but are a lot of the things you treat uh, things people are born with uh, in terms of doing that, uh, in terms of children, for example? Do do you uh, treat children or do you do these tests to children? Yeah, so neuropsychologists, um, depending on the background, depending on their their area of expertise, uh, really will be seeing folks across lifespan, starting with all the way down to the ages maybe two or three at the point even uh, before folks are verbal, um, all the way up through um, the later years as well. So when I send somebody to your office, what should they expect? When I order a neuropsychological battery, what happens? Somebody shows up and what do you do? Yeah, so one of the first things that we do is we want to make sure that we're able to get all of the pragmatic elements uh, in place because we need to make sure that insurance is going to be um, covering. And if it's not covering entirely or not at all, we need to make sure the person knows uh, prior to doing the eval that this is the situation. Do most uh, insurances cover? 
Uh, I would say the vast majority of insurances will cover uh, at least part of the evaluation. Now, it depends on what the purpose of the evaluation is or what is causing the problem. So if we talk about developmental issues, which is one of the pieces that you alluded to with children, um, there are some uh, developmental issues that will be very easily covered. We have to get prior authorization, you know, all all of those fun things. Um, But then there are also some conditions that – it depends on the insurance. They may or may not cover just because it's perceived as being an issue related to learning. And and so in those instances, often folks need to pay out of pocket or, or schools will also step up and assist with that. Well, one of the common things we always think of is uh, attention deficit disorder mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that there are so many people being diagnosed with this condition, especially children. And yet uh, I often wonder how they got to the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I would think that that's something a neuropsychologist should come up with. So does insurance pay for that? So what we found is that the vast majority of insurances will cover an ADHD evaluation. However, there are certain exceptions. Some of that depends on the insurance uh, carrier themselves. Sometimes they put limitations on how much time can actually be put into that. Um, But what we found is that um, the neuropsychological eval is very useful for being able to tease out elements such as a condition as ADHD. There's a lot of other issues that we'll be looking at also in the eval. Part of the reason that we do an eval that is much longer than perhaps just an hour or two, sometimes they're three hours, four hours, sometimes all the way up to eight hours, is because conditions such as ADHD um, can, uh, or the problems that may relate to a condition like that could also be related to a lot of other problems. And so we're not just trying to identify what is this problem, but we have to rule out a lot of other issues because you don't want to kind of get stuck and miss things. So someone comes to your office and, and you start the testing. Do you plan what tests you're going to use in advance or do you start with some basics and then start trying to hone in on which way to go next? So there's different ways to, to approach that. In our office, uh, the first thing that we do is we sit down with uh, whoever's coming in. Some, we ask them often to bring a family member or a friend. So we can sit down and spend an hour, maybe an hour and a half, talking with them and really trying to understand what the problem is, really trying to understand how it's been interfering with their life, how is it interfering with their relationships, how is it interfering with their jobs. And, and so uh, once we've done that, then at, at the end of that, we usually will sit down and you know, give, give them a few minutes just to kind of gather themselves. And we will think through what is a battery that would really make sense for this particular individual. There's a lot of things that we need to cover in every battery. And so there's certain tests that we'll use um, quite often. But there's other things just based on what we heard. Perhaps a person is an older adult. And what we've learned from the interview is that they seem to be struggling with understanding what is being said to them or expressing themselves. And so that's going to shift things a little bit um, so that we want to look um, a little more closely at areas related to language comprehension, language expression. On average, how long does it take? I would say the average evaluation as it relates to face-to-face time, which is quite different than the entire evaluation because we do have to score and then uh, write up the reports. But the face-to-face time on average is probably between three and five hours. So it's it's a long it's it's a you can't do more than one in a day, I would think. Well, it depends on how you set things up, but it wow. is quite difficult to uh, get to more than one in a day. Um, since we touched on the subject, difference between ADD and ADHD, mm-hmm. and I and 
I think there's some confusion regarding that. Certainly. Uh, can you explain the difference? Absolutely. Please. So if we go back to the early days when uh, ADD, ADHD was being discussed, um, there was a differentiation, ADD being attention deficit disorder. And the differentiation was ADHD being attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so there, the, the main element being uh, that separates the two was being, you know, as, as hyperactivity. So in the last 10, maybe 12 years, uh, we've shifted in the field so we don't talk about ADD as much anymore, although uh, it is something that most certainly is discussed because attention deficit disorder. Um, but we, we, there's three subtypes that we talk about with ADHD. One is inattentive, which is what the, the old language, you know, the ADD. Sure. One is hyperactive, and then one is combined. So it would be ADHD I or ADHD H or C. So you can have a attention deficit hyperactive disorder and not be hyperactive. Uh, I think that's where I'm getting confused because most adults don't don't have the hyperactive part, do they? You're right. You're right. Okay. Um, it you know the way a condition may look as a child can change depending on the person's age. So certainly, what's the most common thing you see in the office that someone is referred to you for? I know what they referred to from my office, Certainly. and that's concussion and people getting hit in the head. But is that the most common thing you see in the office? You know, it probably splits between um, general medical conditions such as multiple sclerosis, uh, perhaps Parkinson's disease, um, Huntington's disease, some of these things. Um, and then we would see uh, a lot of head injury, a lot of concussion, but then also uh, quite a few cases that are related to changes in memory or thinking skills for older adults, so uh, dementia-related questions. I'm already amazed because you see so many neurodegenerative disorders um, that we often mistake in terms of saying, well, someone's got Alzheimer's disease. But you're talking about very different conditions that could also be mistaken for Alzheimer's disease Certainly. Um, as well. Do you see a lot of people with Alzheimer's? We do. Um, is is it through the neuro? Is it hard to do neuropsychological testing on someone with Alzheimer's disease? I would think that that's an obstacle right there. You know, it it isn't. Um, we spend a good amount of time um, in our training, uh, learning how to work with folks across the lifespan, and so uh, we certainly, uh, if a person uh, is presenting with memory difficulties or deficits, uh, language based issues, and such, we're going to adjust the battery so it's not going to be five hours of testing. That might be two hours of testing. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we spend quite a bit of time working with folks with Alzheimer's disease. And, and I think in particular, neuropsychology is very good at being able to tease apart, is this Alzheimer's? Is it a different type of dementia? Or perhaps it's a medical condition that we really need to, um, we need to look into finding the best treatment for. Yeah, and the beauty of that is some of these are treatable. And uh, having a neuropsychological test can also be predictive. And, and that's what really helps somebody is, okay, you need to change your lifestyle to adjust for the deficit, which is what I love to get in your reports is uh, to be able to give somebody clues on, on how to improve their thinking and mm -hmm. move across from there. We're going to be taking a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Caleb Peck of Claris Health Alliance. And uh, by the way, his telephone number, 860 889-7274 is the telephone number there. And we're going to talk about treatment for Alzheimer's disease. We're going to talk about the treatments going forward after you perform the neuropsychological testing. 
You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And we are chatting today with Dr. Caleb Peck, who is a neuropsychologist. Let me give you the phone numbers again, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. That's 966-WTIC. Caleb, before the break, we started chatting a little bit about dementia, different types of dementia. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specific types um, that people are always very concerned about? Certainly. Yeah, so Alzheimer's is probably the the main dementia that folks think about when they come in and when they're talking about dementia. Uh, and that particular condition often uh, shows up as, as subtle memory issues, uh, perhaps language problems, uh, word-finding issues. Um, and so that's probably the big one that folks um, are talking about when they come in, that they want to know, they you know, do I have this, do I not have it? But there's a lot of other uh, dementing uh, conditions such as uh, vascular dementia, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it, you know, and there's a number of uh, risk factors that a person might have that often are associated with increasing risk, such as um, hypertension, high cholesterol, uh, diabetes, a number of these other things. You don't have to have all of those, uh, any number of those things over the long term can cause a person to have some changes in their vascular system. And then there's certainly a lot of other um, uh, dementia-related issues, such as uh, frontal temporal dementia um, and, uh, and quite a few. Does, so does controlling the risk factors improve the dementia or just avoid its deterioration when we start talking about uh, diabetes or vascular types of dementia? Does, does it, can you reverse some of that dementia, some of that forgetfulness, uh, by those treatments? So the answer to the question very heavily relies on how metabolic uh, is the particular condition that we're talking about. So if we're looking at something like Alzheimer's disease, there certainly are, are things that we can talk about as it relates to exercise, uh, making sure a person's staying social, uh, making sure that they are um, uh, keeping their diet uh, healthy and these sorts of things. But it's a, it's a neurodegenerative condition that by the nature of what it is, will progress and get worse. As it relates to uh, something such as vascular, um, there are a number of things that we can reduce, uh, such as if a person is a smoker or a number of other things that that will improve um, uh, cognition. So it will improve it. It will improve. It doesn't doesn't fix it. No. But but it can improve things and it can stabilize. So, because obviously when you see somebody, it really helps if you reevaluate them, say, a year later Mm -hmm. to get an idea of whether or not we're dealing with a progressive problem or not. Um, So, if you were to give someone tips, so they have this neurodegenerative disorder, but you can sit down with them and say, you know, if you did this, I don't know, make lists or all the little things we try to do to, to help us remain that when you retest them are they testing better or more stable i again i know it depends on the individual patient but can you in some way see that they've improved on the neuropsychological testing so i think that again it really goes back to what the underlying cause of the issue is okay and and i will say that i I see folks often enough who come back in a year and and 
their cognition is about the same as it was, or perhaps it is a bit better. Now, you know, I think folks could get hung up a little bit and say, well, is this statistically better sorts of things? But um, I, I do see folks talking about a stabilizing of, of uh, their health. But um, one of the challenges is that when, it, when a person has gotten to the point where there is decline, it's been many, many years, particularly if it's related to lifestyle choices. It's been many, many years it's built up to that point. And so, um, but there are a lot of things that we can change. Uh, exercise is one of the big pieces. And, and that's one of the main things that I, I will always recommend to people is that you need to get up, you need to get moving. And, and if you have orthopedic issues, you're not able to, uh, perhaps you have a knee issue or something, get in a pool. Um, it's it's a low uh, low impact sort of exercise that really is great for your health. Nobody has an excuse issue, that's for sure. There are always a lot of excuses for that. Um, dietary stuff. Well, we always hear about the Mediterranean diet um, producing improvement and and blueberries and things such as that. Have you found those to be effect, dietary changes to be effective when you retest people? That's a great question and. I'm not sure that I know the answer to that because we end up having a pretty small sample size uh, in terms of folks who will actually make some of those changes. Um, I think that a lot of the literature that is coming out, though, is showing that those different dietary choices do have a, a positive effect on cognition. So one of the things everybody always says, geez, I'm doing crossword puzzles like they told me to do or do word finding. And I had this conversation with your predecessor, Chris Tolsdorf. And I said, you know, Chris, people tell me that, you know, if I'm doing puzzles, do puzzles really help? Um, his response was interesting. He said, if you keep doing puzzles, you'll get good at puzzles. Uh, and his thought was that memorization is what makes the difference. So the things that we were taught as children – memorizing prayers. You know, everybody says, it's just rote memory. Yeah, but that rote memory apparently preserves our neurons when we're older in terms of memorizing prayers in particular or poetry and things such as that. Um, and, and I've kind of thought as you get older, if you're starting to learn a new language, for example, are those are th do those things help you with dementia? What's your thought? You know, my thought, why well, I certainly have to defer to what Chris yeah, Tolstoy would say, right? Okay. The math. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would say that something that we've consistently seen is that high or strong cognitive reserve um, usually is resistant to cognitive change over time. Now, I think all of us are marching towards some sort of condition. This is just the reality of life. But learning a language, really pushing your brain really does have a positive effect. And and there are things that, you know, if, if we're in our 30s, 40s, 50s, things that we can start implementing now that will have a positive effect. The funny thing is, though, you implement them now, how are you going to know, right? We know what the literature says. Um, so in that same vein, is it often – so one of the big comp problems I face with patients are, all right, I've become more forgetful. Am I getting dementia? And much of it is age-related. I mean, we have to start accepting that we're not remembering people's names or faces as quickly as as we did. Um, so when you test someone, you have good data to differentiate that. Yeah, so what you're talking about is, and many, many folks will come in, it's, it's interesting when a family comes in, and often there can be a big difference of opinion about, you know, mom's health. 
one family member will say. Well, that's when just... you become Dr. Phil, okay? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm impressed that you invite the whole family in, okay? Because that leads to fights sometimes, okay? They, sometimes it's a knockdown drag out. So, but go ahead. That's it is. Be, and in it those is. situations, I'll, I'll remind them that I am a neuropsychologist, which means I'm not that great at doing therapy. Among the siblings, okay? So not even the patient. The, the, well, no, she doesn't do that. And they'll go back and forth, but go ahead. <laughs> so the thing that we'll, um, I'll often remind them also is that the point of the evaluation is the proof will be in the pudding, right? And so at the end of the evaluation, we'll be able to talk about um, what, what did we find? What did we not find? But I think the, going back to the question that you had about this, this idea of who are you comparing uh, the data to? You know, are you comparing it to yourself? Well, if we've only seen you once, right. it's kind of hard to do, right? Right. Um, and so uh, what we use is normative data. And so we'll take thousands of individuals that are age and education. And there's other demographic factors we might also look at. Um, and we'll compare a person's scores to their peer group or their cohort. And that way we're able to see what is that, you know, that normal change. Let's not get overly uh, worried if there's been that normal change. Are, is this particular person right in with the pack? Are they lagging behind a bit, which could potentially indicate that there's a problem? Well, this has been fascinating, and we're going to take a short break and get back here. You know, I noticed, uh, Caleb, that you mentioned, you know, things you could do in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. But now that I'm in my 60s, I'm starting to feel like I might be a hopeless case here. But anyhow, um, (laughs) with that, we're going to take a short break uh, before we come up on the last segment. If you have a question, you want to get it in in the last segment, it's 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on W. WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. We're chatting today with Dr. Caleb Peck. Dr. Peck is a neuropsychologist at Claris Health Alliance, 860-889-7274. Uh, some people had called in and asked for the information. Um Caleb, I'm just fascinated by all this discussion, uh, really. So in my field, where I'm seeing a lot of people with concussion, people who think they have chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, you know, what do you see when you start evaluating these patients for head injury or repetitive head injury? So it's a it's really a fascinating group to work with, and I, I love working with these folks. Um and what I find is that there's a lot of misinformation out there about um, how many concussions does it take for there to be a problem? How, how bad of a concussion does it have to sure. be for it to really be a problem? Um, and so, you know, we, we see folks really across the lifespan, um, as, as you would expect, uh, who are coming in with uh, concussions, many things related to sports, perhaps. Sometimes folks have slipped and fallen at work and what have you, so... Yeah, so obviously there are diverse groups. So CTE, everybody's hearing about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, the ultimate excuse for bad behavior these days. Uh, do you see, have you seen patients where you think that that's the problem? I have. And I would say the vast majority of the folks that I see with mild traumatic brain injury or concussion do not fall into that category. But there have been a few. Some of them have been um, sports-related injuries where perhaps a football player or someone like that who's really had repeated issues. Other than the one case we've shared, have you had any where they've gone on to having uh, to passing away and having the pathology proven? I don't think so. At least folks haven't contacted me to let me know. 
Okay. Other than uh, our one case that we shared uh, where that has been pathologically proven now. Um, but uh, forensics, I, I'm fascinated like many people by watching forensic files. And a lot of times it's the neuropsychologist who gets in the middle of all this. Uh, last week we actually talked, it was the anniversary of uh, the uh, person who really did the first types of profiling um, back uh, in the Middle Ages. But can you talk to us a little bit about forensics and what you do in the area of forensic psychology? Certainly. So as as a neuropsychologist, I'm often asked to do evaluations that have some sort of legal question. And so the reference I made a minute ago um, as it relates to uh, perhaps an injury that someone has at work, that's sort of maybe a soft forensic case, whereas um, something that is a little more um, – a little more of a challenge, a little more of an issue perhaps as someone who has been in a car accident uh, and had a pretty serious injury. And so the we frequently are contacted by attorneys, insurance um, carriers, a number of other uh, types of sources and asked to do an evaluation. And I, I love these evaluations because they're they're fascinating. Um, the, the situations are always very interesting. There's a lot of details and it really takes a good amount of detail-oriented um, focus in these particular cases. Um, and so um, we we frequently will do the evaluation. These evaluations end up being pretty long, um, at least a day. And, uh, and then we're asked by attorneys and other folks to talk about how serious is the injury. Is there an injury here? Sometimes folks will come and they're claiming an injury, but we're not able to find anything. And so it, it really has a lot of interesting components to it. Uh, so yeah, let me backtrack on that a little bit. So if someone is not being truthful uh, when you're doing the test, I mean, how do you proceed? I mean, do you just kind of shut it down? Because obviously there then become inconsistencies in the testing. Um, how do you proceed from there? So we use actually objective tests to identify whether or not someone is putting forth sufficient you know, interest uh, effort into the evaluation. And so there was a really interesting article that came out, I believe it was in 2013, May of 2013, um, that showed that just based on interview alone, Medical professionals, there was a particular group of professionals reference, but medical professionals are at about a 50-50 for being able to identify whether or not a person is claiming um, an injury that is, that is valid or not. And so uh, we, we don't rely just on the interview itself because there's a lot of other factors that we look at. And so as a part of the evaluation, we do put in these, these different measures that get at this sense of, is this person engaged? Are they not engaged? One of the reasons that we have to be careful is that there are some conditions uh, where a person may psychologically, in a, on a subconscious level, be, um, be trying to promote this problem or this issue that they have where they really deeply believe that the issue is there. And so we have to be really careful because we don't want to uh, misidentify that person as purposefully when, in fact, it's related to a psychological problem. And so it takes a lot of uh, a lot of. I think careful work, understanding the literature, and then also really making sure you understand the case. Uh, that, boy, that is fascinating. Uh, be, just from the standpoint that I mean, even on the neurologic exam, we we know that there are certain inconsistencies that are not physiologically possible, mm -hmm. um, and uh, yet um, you bring up the other point is. What is making the person do that? Is there secondary gain or what is that gain? Is it a psychological gain or not? 
Uh, Caleb, one of the things I guess I want to know is what's the future of neuropsychology? Where do you see your field going? Um, you know, it, in medicine, we're always saying about imaging and, and things such as that. But in neuropsychology, uh, where's it going? What's the future of neuropsychology? It's a great question. I, I think that the, the field is always progressing, is always improving, especially as imaging techniques are getting more and more sophisticated. Um, some of the things that we are really trying to uh, make sure that we are um, um, that we're right on the curve is making sure that our outcomes as it relates to neuropsychological test data uh, really is showing and we're able to um, we're able to really uh, outline how this makes a difference and so we talked a bit ago about the the CTE question and so the field is really I think it's embedded in so many different areas of, of um, society we think of uh, with football players and uh, with athletes and and I think that really being able to um, really being able to, I think, identify um, how the findings that we have are helpful and how they are making a difference in people's lives is a huge part that we're continuing to do. Do you think we'll get to the point where, from a neuropsychological standpoint, th there'll be some way, for example, one of our biggest questions in clinical medicine and clinical neurology, especially in sports, is who should be participating and who shouldn't be participating? And at what point do you say you're done? Uh, and and it's it's pretty subjective, even on our part. I it mean, is. we look for changes in the radiologic findings. We look for neuropsychological findings. But you're always struggling as to whether or not you you think we'll have something more conclusive uh, in the future in terms of being able to determine who should participate in a contact sport or a combat sport? I think we will, but I'm not sure that it will be just one area or one field that will have the edge on that. I think it's really in collaboration that uh, that we really are able to um, uh, make those predictions. Caleb, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us on this uh, Saturday morning. Uh, it's been great chatting with you and great working with you uh, over the years, and I look forward to more years of working with you. Um, Dr. Peck uh, is at Claris Health Alliance. If you wish to get in touch with him, it's 860-889-7274. Caleb, thanks a lot for coming. Thank you. And many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Olko's on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, I'm going to be here. We're going to be talking about a few different topics, but one of them is going to be healthcare in Connecticut, healthcare delivery in Connecticut. How is that being affected by what's going on in Washington, D.C.? Next up on WTC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi wishing you to please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.